I'm going to read a few verses from the beginning of John 14, and then we're going to skip some portions and pick up again toward the end. So John 14 from verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then from verse 25 at the end of the chapter, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Again we pray. Once more, Heavenly Father, we come and plead for your Spirit's work in our hearts this night, for your gracious smile upon us, that we might indeed enjoy that uh, teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit, that we may perceive and understand Christ in his present glory. Lord, teach us all of this, we ask, in ways that before we have not grasped, that we might honour you and have hearts full of hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to speak to you tonight about the joy of Christ's absence. If that sounds strange to you, it sounded very strange to the disciples also. That's why their hearts were troubled, because Christ was telling them that he was going to go away from them. Yes, he said that he would come back to them, but they seemed to have grasped uh, primarily, if not entirely and only, that he was leaving. In verse 28, he reminds them of what he said a couple of occasions, even in this chapter. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. The prospect of Jesus not being with them was what so deeply troubled them. And despite all the promises that he makes, despite all the assurances that he gives, it seems that this continues to dominate their thinking. Surely nothing could be better 
or sweeter than Christ's immediate physical presence. And I imagine that we understand the disciples. Have you not sometimes thought that all problems would be addressed if we only had Christ's immediate physical presence? Even taking account of the fact that now he is glorified, we might say to to have Christ with us even in his humiliation. You understand why the people that he blessed said, Lord, we want to come with you. You think of the, the Gadarene demoniac who said, Lord, wherever you're going, I will follow. And Christ said to him, no, I want you to go home and tell your own people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And as Christ's life and ministry reaches now the the climax of his death on the cross, uh, we're back now in the the discourse that the Lord Jesus had with his disciples in anticipation of his death. We understand these men who loved him so much saying, but we want you with us. And I think we understand that desire. We might still say, if only we were, he were here now. But he's not. And he told his disciples he was going away. It's there in verses 2 through to 4. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. In verse 12, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Verses 18 and 19, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Verse 21, he who has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and show myself to him. The implication being that he will not be there immediately to be seen. Jesus answered in verse 23 and said to Judas, not Iscariot, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, we will come to you because we will not, in one sense, be with you. And this seems to be the primary message that the disciples then receive. Jesus is going away. He's going to need to come to us in a particular way. And for them, it was no reason for delight. And then in verse 28, the Lord Jesus says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, on what basis can we rejoice because of Christ's absence? Christ insists upon it. Christ demands it. But Christ also reasons about it so that we can understand why it is so good for us that Christ has gone away. He lays down the condition, if you loved me. And that's where so much of this hangs, because we need to understand the kind of love that we're talking about. 
Then he talks about the consequence. If you loved me, you would rejoice. At which point we're still saying, but where do you go? And at last he comes to the cause. Because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So you have a condition, a consequence, and at last to resolve it all, the cause. If you loved me. If they love themselves, they're going to grieve. Because they'll be thinking only in terms of their own short-term gain and loss. Christ displaces their concern for themselves and directs them toward himself. They're thinking in terms of their felt needs. They're thinking in terms of their immediate crisis. They're asking the question, in effect, what are we going to do, Lord, without you? We need you. We need you here. We need your guidance. We need your care. We need your protection. We need your direction. We need your wisdom. We need your power. We can't do what we think we need to do. We can't live the way we should live. We're not going to be all right without you. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, but do you love me? Do you love me? If you do, everything will change. If you love me, you will desire my glory. If you love me, you will want my joy. If you love me, you will glory in my triumph. If you love me, my supremacy will be all important to you. I appreciate the way our Lord Jesus draws the focus upon his own person we love the truth of jesus christ but do we love it because it is jesus truth we love the book that speaks about jesus christ do we love it because it is christ of whom it speaks we love the acts of the lord jesus we love the things that he does but is that because he does them for us or because we see the beauty of him who does them. I don't want to distinguish those two fiercely, but you, you think, you see the point I'm making. We, we love the blessings that Jesus gives. Do we love the Jesus who gives the blessings? It's easy to love the gifts, easier to overlook the giver. Everybody who gets a nice present at Christmas and rips off the wrapping paper and, oh, look what I've got, look what I've got, look what I've got. And forget, have you said thank you? Oh yes, I need to do that. The promises, we love the promises that the Lord Jesus makes. Do we love him who makes the promises and understand how they hang upon him? Christ sets himself before the disciples and before us as a person. Not as a cipher, not as a process, not as an idea. Do you love me if you did it would be transformative because if your love is fundamentally short-sighted then you will want jesus here and now at this point in the history of redemption with christ about to be crucified and to go to be with god on his resurrection if they are going to hold him back as it were it shows that they do not love him as they should. Now, I don't think the Lord is saying this absolutely. You don't love me at all. 
What he's saying is your love needs to be trained. Your love needs to be directed. Your love needs to be purified. It needs to be increased. It needs to be uh, not so much tweaked as, as, as uh, reworked so that you understand actually what is taking place here. Because if you loved me in that way, if you loved me in the way that, that I understand it, if you saw what I see, if you understood what I understand, then your love for me would look far higher and far further than the here and now. You're, you're sort of trapped in the moment, you disciples. All you can see is this threat and this danger and this need and this problem. But I want you to understand that love for me will look beyond this immediate moment. Love will transform our gaze. Love for Christ enables us, as it were, to step back and take a grander and a wider and a further and a higher view. To discern what before cannot be discerned. To understand how things hold together in the plan and the purpose of God. So do you love Christ? It's one of the great marks of salvation. Now, loving Jesus doesn't save you. Trusting Jesus is the way in which you obtain the mercy of God in Christ. But whoever trusts Jesus loves him. Once you have put your faith in him, coming to him and seeing his beauty and his glory, your eyes opened by the Spirit of Christ. It's why we're taking our time pacing through those portions of Luke's gospel. We want to gaze upon the Christ who we love. You should love Christ. I want everyone here to love Jesus Christ. It is my deepest desire that our hearts should be taken up with him. But to love him as he should be loved. And that means, my friends, that even if we're here this evening saying, I do love him then we should be asking, teach me to love you more. Like the man in Mark's gospel, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Every Christian prays that. Every Christian too should be saying, Lord, I love you. Help my love. Train my love. Increase my love. Fine-tune my love. Elevate and intensify my love. Give me an understanding of what it means for, for you to be the Christ of God, to understand how the promises hold together and come to their fruition in you. Take your love this evening to the school of Jesus of Nazareth. If you love me, you would rejoice. This is the consequence of the kind of love that Jesus is speaking about. When love is trained, it gives birth to joy. Joy is a fruit of love, love to God and love to Jesus Christ. And Christ is saying, in the light of his departure, if you loved me, you would be deeply delighted by this prospect. And at that point, we really do start I'm, I'm, I can't compute. What is it about Christ and his circumstances that means that love will deeply delight in his departure? Real happiness comes because Christ isn't with us. It seems so counterintuitive. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that I will no longer be with you. I mean, even our love, our horizontal love is going to struggle with that. 
I mean, if a husband said to his wife, because you love me, I want you to be really happy that I'm going... Now, some of you might be saying, yeah, I could do that for a little while at least. But, but if you love someone, you want them near, don't you? The idea of being far apart from someone, that's not pleasant because of love. How then can the Lord Jesus say, nothing should bring you more pleasure, more joy than my temporary departure? Now, when we see clearly, when we have eyes of love that look with faith and hope, we will find joy in strange places. When we love Christ as we should, we might find joy in our pains and sorrows. When we love Christ as we should, we might find joy in our distresses and our griefs. When we love Christ as we should, we will find joy in the blessings that he bestows, not just on us, but also on others. But still, still you and I need some good reasons to sustain our Lord's argument that if we loved him, we would rejoice at his departure. We understand what it means for love to rejoice in the presence of the beloved. What is it about this situation that would enable the disciples and by extension us to rejoice in the fact that Jesus isn't with us now? And that brings us to the cause. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father for my father is greater than I. Now let me deal with that last phrase or clause first of all. Some of you will be aware of a teaching called Arianism. Arianism. Arius was a false teacher in the early church who denied that Jesus Christ was truly God. He, he denied his deity. And this was a, a kind of text that the Arians would have loved. Aha! My father is greater than I. And modern-day Arians love this text as well. If you've had a long enough conversation with the Jehovah's Witness on your doorstep, it's likely that sooner or later you've come to John 14, 28, or something like it. You see, Jesus himself says, my father is greater than I. God the Father is something that Jesus is not. So, what does our Lord mean when he says, my father is greater than I? Now, if you are reasoning with somebody under these circumstances, what you need to remember is that John's gospel itself is one of the clearest declarations of the fact that in himself, Jesus as the son of God is truly God and equal with the father. You go right back to the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And it attributes to Christ creative dignity and power. In fact, you only need to turn back just a couple of chapters to chapter 10, when the Lord Jesus is speaking of his identity as the great and true and good shepherd of the sheep. And he says... In verse 30, I and my father are one. And the Jews hate what he says. Verse 33, we are trying to stone you for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Christ clearly stated and John clearly teaches that Jesus is indeed God. 
So how is it that Jesus Messiah can say, my father is greater than I? And the answer lies in his present state and condition as he speaks these words. In his humiliation. For he is here the God-man who has taken to himself our flesh and blood. In becoming for us that incarnate Messiah... He has not laid aside his Godhead, but he has put aside his glory. He has taken to himself flesh and blood. He has become what we are. He is now the mediator, God and man, laying aside the glory that properly belongs to him and submitting himself to the Father as a servant for the sake of salvation. To go then to his father, because his father is in that sense greater than him, is for him now to be exalted on high. It is for him to be lifted up. Not simply you understand the resurrection. That's a marvel. That's a glory. To think of him who was that battered and bruised and assaulted and despised Messiah, the man who hung upon the cross in the agonies of that awful death under the weight of God's wrath, now coming forth in glory from the tomb. That in itself is magnificent. But Christ, having risen, did not long remain amongst his people. He went physically to be at the right hand of God. We've mentioned already that Shekinah cloud. We've talked about the heavens opening and swallowing up Jesus of Nazareth in his majesty as he goes up to sit at the throne of God's power on high. That's what is taking place. That's what Christ is anticipating. And he says to his disciples, that's what lies ahead for me. I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And he's essentially saying to his disciples, if you loved me, you would rejoice at that prospect for me. If you really were taken up with my person, if you really were committed to my glory, if you really understood what's taking place and what lies ahead, nothing would give you greater delight than this, that I will go to be with my Father. I will rise from the tomb. I will ascend up into the heavens. I will take my place at the right hand of the majesty on high. My race will soon be finished. My crown will soon be won. And I will sit until my enemies are made my footstool. And if you love Jesus Christ, then you will rejoice because this is best for him. Do you find it easy to read these records of his sufferings? Don't they tear at your soul? My friends, we've become so horribly accustomed to this, haven't we? So familiar with the record of Christ's death. We read those words and it, it seems so distant. It's a, it's a theory to us. It's, it's almost cartoonish. Those beatings, those bruisings, those bleedings crown of imperial purple put around his lacerated shoulders a body 
unrecognisable because of its sufferings before he even reaches the cross. A man by now so drained of strength and energy as the blood from his beaten and whipped and scourged back drains away that he stumbles under the weight of his own cross. A man with nails driven through his hands and feet with that mocking sign over his head speaking more truth than they knew. This is the king of the Jews. The agonies of his flesh the agonies of his spirit. Is that the Christ that you want? Don't you love him? Isn't it a tragedy that when you go into a Roman Catholic church, their Christ is still there? The crucifix doesn't honour Jesus Christ. The crucifix, as it were, freezes him at his one sense, lowest point. It seems to rob him of his present strength and majesty. But he is no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the tomb. Jesus is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who live. Christ has been glorified. You can tell it's him. But you would not barely recognize him that's why the the disciples when they saw him in his glory they didn't immediately at every point oh that's Jesus of Nazareth remember he had to show them his hands and his side on occasion he had to open their eyes on the road to Emmaus don't you love him and desire his triumph doesn't it thrill your heart that his sufferings are now past and that his glory has been entered into that he is ascendant, that he is now there in the presence of his Father, that he has again the glory that belonged to him before the world was, but now as mediator, as God and man, as your representative, as your redeemer, that he is reigning, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth that all things are under his perfect control and that he is interceding as our great, great priest in the presence of his father and our father. You see, if we really loved him, we would be delighted that he is where he is. That's what Christ is saying to the disciples and in some sense it hits them even harder because they are on the other side of the cross Christ is saying if if you loved me you'd rejoice at what lies ahead for me it's best for me that I should be with my father and in truth it is best also for you why because if you are believing in Jesus Christ you are united to him and so you are in a very real, if mystical sense, where he is. You remember how the Apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 2. Where does a Christian sit? Seated with Christ in the heavenlies. If we loved him, we would rejoice because he goes to his Father. 
If we loved him in that way, we would realize that it is far better, not just for him, but for us that he goes to be with the Father, who is greater than he is in the sense that we have described. My friends, if Christ is above, seated at the right hand of God, if that's where our hearts are, if that's where our treasure is, if that's where our mind turns, if that's where we now belong, then our security and our blessing lies not in the fact that we have a physical Christ in his weakness with us, but that we have a glorified Christ who is for us at the right hand of the Father on high. And even more than that, what is the coronation gift of your king? What happened when Christ was raised up on high? Do you remember how he said to his disciples, it's recorded that the spirit was not until Christ was ascended. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Again, it means that the spirit was not given in the way that we now enjoy. All the way through John 14, what is the Lord Jesus saying? When I go, I will come. When I leave, I will not leave you orphans. If I depart, I will give you a gift. And that gift is my spirit. He will proceed from me and from my father. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, my friends, when you come to the record of Pentecost... And you see the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church. When you understand that because Christ is now raised on high and has given his spirit, that that spirit is the one who makes you alive. That that spirit is the one who takes and shows to you the things that belong to Jesus Christ. That that spirit is the one who, wherever the word of God is preached, is able to bring about conviction of sin, is able to make the dead sinner to live, is able to show us the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. That because he is exalted on high, Christ is no longer limited in that sense to his immediate physical presence as he was in the days of his humiliation. That now the Holy Spirit is in every one of his people, in every place. That Christ now is demonstrating the limitless excellence of his being and of his doing. And that he is with us. When the Lord Jesus says, go and make disciples and behold, I am with you always. The disciples at this point might have said, how's that going to work? Well, Christ is going to give his spirit so that he will be with us. Christian, do you understand that because your glorified Christ is at the presence of God, in, in the presence of God at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, that therefore you have him by his spirit in your heart? That is good for you. For Christ is with you, with all of us, with all his people. Over all the centuries still he ascended, since he ascended to be with his Father. You see, it is better on every level for these disciples that Christ should go away from them. 
and then return to them. He is going to be with his father. And once he is exalted, once he is risen on high, once he has made captivity captive, once he has gone into his glory, then our blessings begin to pour forth from him as he sits on his throne and begins to order all things for the gathering in of his people under the new covenant and for the establishment of his kingdom. And so these disciples, when the Lord Jesus speaks to them, they see death, but he sees life. He says, if you loved me, you would see the life that is to come. They see defeat. He sees victory. He says, if you loved me, you would rejoice because of the triumph that I will accomplish. They see departure. He sees enthronement. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going to sit down on my throne there forever to reign and to rule on behalf of my beloved people. You see loss, but I see gain. And if you loved me, you would see that my gain is your gain, that my blessing is your blessing, that my exaltation is your exaltation, that what I receive, I receive with and for you. Don't you love the way that the Lord Jesus speaks here? I want you to be with me where I am. Now, my friends, where do you want to be? Don't you want to be where Christ now is? Doesn't that delight and thrill you? If you loved him, then you would rejoice because he goes to his father. His father is greater than he is. And in loving him above all things, including our own immediate blessings and sense of security, then we would find greater blessing and greater security, and greater delight and joy. My friends, if we love Jesus Christ, then that love will so transform us that we will love everything that honours and exalts him. And this is what I mean by the transformation of our circumstances by love for Jesus Christ. I do not love my pains I do not love my trials and I do not love my losses. But if in them and by them I come to see and know more of Christ, if in them and by them Christ himself is glorified, if in them and by them he makes himself known to me and to others in ways that he would not have done, then I can rejoice. When others manifest graces when others are given gifts better than the ones that i might have when others receive blessings beyond the ones that i might have received and i myself might long for what does love for christ do it rejoices because it's not about me and it's not about us that's his glory that's his majesty that's the revelation of his kindness his goodness and his excellence and if I love Christ, then I will rejoice in his present glory. His sufferings and sorrows are past. Yes, there is a sense in which 
still because of his unity with his people, his union and communion with us, that he can say to a Saul of Tarsus, for example, why are you persecuting me? But his is the place of current honour. Do you love Christ enough that the fact that he is seated among the heavenly hosts, receiving the praises of the armies of heaven, delights your heart? Do you love Christ enough that the fact that he is in the presence of his Father and ours thrills your soul? Do you love Christ enough that the fact of his present reign delights your heart? Do you love Christ enough that the fact that his present delayed return means that he is still gathering in his saints, still glorifying his name in salvation? Do you love Christ enough that you might say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly, but not until your work is accomplished, not until your kingdom is finally populated, not until all your chosen ones are brought in from every part of the kingdom. We might still say, Lord, I long for you to be here, even more now in your glory than in the days of your humiliation. But for as long as it is good for you to be with your Father, I love you and rejoice because of where you are. And in your being there, far from being far from us, you are closer to us than you would otherwise be. Our relationship with you more rich, more true, more full, more intimate, more close than if you were yourself still walking amongst us. For you have come and taken up residence with us. You have made your home in our hearts. You have promised us that you will not leave us or forsake us. You have said, I will be with you all the days, even to the very end of the age. My friends, when Christ trains our love to him, when he lifts it, elevates it, increases it, intensifies it, trains it and directs it, we will rejoice because he says, I am going to the Father. It is the best place for him and the best place for him is the best thing for us. May God then help us to love the fact that though Christ is not with us, he is where he should be where he is most glorified and where we are made most happy and secure. This is the joy of Christ's absence and the only thing that will exceed it is the joy of his return.